From the Defense Acquisition University, this is the Learning Circle. This is the Learning Circle. I'm Anthony Rotolo, and I'm joined today by Dr. Bobby DeLeon, a professor of acquisition management here at DAU in our Defense Systems Management College, where she's a core faculty member for the 10-week Executive Program Managers course, where her focus is on critical thinking development and decision-making. Over the last few years, she has concentrated her efforts both in the classroom and in workplace learning environments on increasing awareness of critical thinking and the tools that help improve the skill set. And that's some good news right there, that this is a set of skills we can work on. Dr. DeLeon, welcome. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. We're happy to have you. Now, we've had a specific push here at DAU to raise awareness about critical thinking so we can help our target audience make smarter business decisions. But critical thinking is a subject area that's also having an impact on the instructional design world. A Google search will yield articles at leading trade journals on the topic because we realize that we need to foster not just learners, but discerners, Mm -hmm. people who can sift and sort and weigh information carefully for better outcomes. Dr. DeLeon, I think this is one of those topics where we may think we know what it is to some extent, but I wonder if you can provide us a more formal definition of critical thinking. Okay, so I'll first give a little history on how the current view of what it is came to be. About 1980, there was a meeting of the minds of folks from psychology, philosophy, and education around the issue of clarifying what do we mean by critical thinking. People think of Socrates, but they also think of building an argument. And if you're a lawyer or a debater, and so there are all these ideas about what it is defined as. And they came up with a really long paragraph. And and at in the end of it, what it essentially means is it's thinking about your thinking. That's the simplest way to state it but with the goal of improving your thinking. So it isn't just sort of a a meditative thought, what was I thinking about and pondering? It's really purposeful. It's holding your thinking up against standards. And it's a process of repeating that with the goal of improving and making it a habit of examining how you think. What What are your beliefs? What was I thinking about in that moment? So it's a more self-aware, cognizant type of thought process. So you're maybe guarding yourself against pitfalls and things along the way. Uh, Possibly. It's it's a number of things. It's deliberate. So it is not natural for us to be critics of our thinking. It's Mm -hmm. just not a natural thing. We're not born thinking about the way we think. So it's deliberate. You have to intend to do it. It is systematic. So it helps to have a way to do it and to have standards that you can you know, decide, you know, was I clear? Was I not clear? Was I precise, accurate? So it helps to have something to compare your thinking to in terms of a standard. It's reflective. So it is about considering how you're thinking in the moment, but it's also a way to look back on how did I think through things and Mm -hmm. what impacts my thinking? And it's self-directed. So a lot of the literature around critical thinking talks about looking outward. How am I examining something with this lens, with this process? But the 
core of it is how am I thinking about it? Mm-hmm. Are there natural steps that someone takes when they're even unconsciously doing it? Yeah. Um, Paul and Elder, two psychologists that really created the the very basic definition of thinking about your thinking with a goal to improving mm-hmm. it, laid out eight what they call elements of thinking that they believe your mind does naturally when you're presented with a dilemma, a problem, something that requires more in-depth thought. And, and there are eight of them. It starts with defining what is the purpose for me to figure this out? Why am I thinking about this? Mm-hmm. What are some questions that I need to be asking or that I can ask? Whose perspective am I considering? And so there are eight of them. And, and their, again, belief is that we do this so fast that we don't catch, you know, really the nuance of what we just did. It would mm. just kind of run through it. And the deliberateness about it is that you stop and think about exactly that. I know I want to go from A to B, but have I thought about why? Yes. Um, and if I think about why, then I need to consider well, what questions do I need to ask about that going from A to B? What do I need to understand? What concepts? Have I thought about the consequences? Have I thought about the assumptions I'm making in going from A to B? So it's it's that kind of deliberateness that paying attention to it requires you to be deliberate. But it happens automatically when we're faced with something that is either a tough decision, a dilemma, or something we haven't seen before. So if those unconscious steps in the process of making a decision become more conscious, you yes. can do them better, make better mm-hmm. decisions, have better outcomes. Yeah, there's a whole science, metacognition, um, sort of examining how you know things, examining how you think. And that's where the critical thinking literature also uh, focuses on in, in ways of improving that. How do you examine and what you're doing with a goal to make it better. Now, a timely example, we've just come out of a really hot election cycle, right? I'm thinking about this because it's a period in which we're bombarded with news and Mm -hmm. sound bites, all kinds of information coming at us constantly Mm -hmm. from many places. Meanwhile, a lot of us are, we think of ourselves as pretty rational beings. Mm -hmm. We all have personal belief systems and biases, though. And it's a real challenge to suspend emotion, mm-hmm. which is it's part of part the thought of process, yeah. right? And and biases and, yeah. and to stop and evaluate information that's coming in that fast so that you can just filter it in a in an honest way for yourself. What are some of the skills that are in play in, in that type of a situation? So I think first and foremost is a desire to want to be a better thinker, um, mm-hmm. to want to be a critical thinker, to want to be uh, skeptical about information or things that are presented to you. It doesn't mean that you're doubting the authenticity of it, but you just want to understand it better and figure out how you're how you really think about it and not just default to the emotional response. And so the standards, which is a part of the Polynesian model, are a good way to examine examine how well you're doing with that automatic process of how, why am I thinking about this? What are some questions? And it's simple things like asking, is this clear? Where can I check on this? How do I know it's true? And one fundamental one is why do I believe it's true or why don't I believe it's true? So it's just really trying to get to the heart of what you believe and why as a basis for examining how you're thinking about things. Because your your worldview is really kind of a, a mesh or filter. Mm-hmm. It lets some things in mm-hmm. to begin with and mm-hmm. others 
it won't even let in. So I think you, you do have to start there, and maybe it changes that lens or filter. We're shaped by our career. We're shaped by the training that we had in, in, mm-hmm. in that career, by where we grew up, where we currently live. All those things mm-hmm. affect how we look at things, the perspective that we take. And just stopping for a minute to try to understand what other perspectives might be relevant or significant is important. So I've wondered if critical thinking falls to some extent under the category of natural talent mm-hmm. versus I'm thinking about how people have gifts for sports yeah. to some some degree yeah. or another. And so is this kind of like that? Can it be taught and to what extent? So that's my question. Can yeah. critical thinking skills be taught and developed yeah. and improved? Yeah, despite the the simple definition that uh, it's thinking about your thinking with a goal to improving it, there are specific skills associated with They are critical thinking skills, and that's analysis skills, interpretation, evaluation, self-regulation. There are skills that you can improve on and work on. Um, Because we don't naturally think about examining those and improving them, it does take a disposition, a desire, a preference to want to look at them. So I, I think the skills can be learned and developed, but I think what the literature and the research suggests is but you have to want to. You have to have a, a, a preference for wanting to do better. Uh, it's not one that you're born with, and so if you aren't focused on it, it just won't improve. And and there's never there's a never ending cycle to it as well. You don't just reach a master critical thinker thinker level and you're done. It's a constant effort to um, refine and hone those skills. Yes, I, and I'm I'm aware just in everyday life when I'm not giving something mm-hmm. the time it deserves. Yeah. You know that no. something deserves more yeah. critical thought. It could be two spouses planning a vacation mm-hmm. and one says, oh, it looks good. Book it. You know, let's go there. And then the other person is still reading the reviews yeah. and yeah. finding things wrong with it <laughs> and, and maybe rightly so. Yeah. And I some th- of that's personality um, preferences yes. as well. Some people like the details uh, and, and some people can move through that cycle of the elements quicker than others. Mm-hmm. Um, so I might be really good at, uh, depending on the subject, depending on where I am emotionally with it, at discerning what I want very quickly. It doesn't necessarily mean that somebody takes more time is a better critical critical thinker. That's true. They just simply have a different way of processing it or, uh, or they take more time or they're more comfortable with having more information where some people may be more comfortable with ambiguity mm-hmm. and uncertainty. And so they can make a decision much quicker. Well, that suggests... I'm thinking of the word intuition, Mm -hmm. and intuition is almost that uncanny ability to size something up with seemingly not a a lot of information, but does that concept come into play in critical thinking discussion? Uh, It comes up more in decision-making than in thinking, critical thinking. Um, Intuition is learned. It's pattern recognition. It's it's not as much instinct. I think sometimes we kind of bring that instinct that something's right or wrong, but there's the intuition, which is informed by, again, your training, yes. where you learn. And so you get a sense for, uh, and I like to use the people in uh, emergency room trauma care, mm-hmm. that they, they've been trained to look for signs 
and discern really quickly what's happening because they don't have a lot of room for error. So that intuition tells them that something either is missing or that there are a number of things there, pattern that they recognize that they can quickly go to a, a course of action. With critical thinking, that's one element, but you still have to try to slow down a little bit and say, well, what is informing that? Why do I believe that this decision is better than this one or, or taking in this information or am I missing something? And so it just asks follow-on questions, particularly if it's not an emergency situation where you yeah. have to react really quickly, that it suggests that we all can take the time to just think over, even if it's just five minutes, why am I thinking this way? What is influence in my thinking? Have I applied any standards to it to make sure that I'm choosing the best dis- outcome, the right, best outcome? Right. So r- what looks like instinct or is really like you said, pattern recognition, mm-hmm. there are signals, there's mm-hmm. data coming in mm-hmm. as a better definition of intuition. And on that example of medical situations, I think we've all seen enough medical dramas. There's always that scene <laughs> where something had gone wrong mm-hmm. in the heat of the moment, yeah. and then maybe a mentor is taking someone through the steps. I saw the blood pressure was high. Yeah. I saw this. I saw that. Yeah. And But they missed this one thing mm-hmm. that maybe the more seasoned person would have picked up on. Yeah. So very interesting. It's a good real-world dramatization Mm -hmm. of deconstructing decision-making. But bringing this closer to home, to an education context, what is the relationship of critical thinking to adult learning? Yeah, so the research that I did as part of my doctoral studies focused on adult learners in a post-secondary education environment. So most of the research on critical thinking had been done on on children or had been done on college students because they're easily accessible if you're in a in a doctoral program. And so uh, there was very little information on research of adults and in a working environment and attending a course, which is what it was based on, aimed at improving their critical thinking skills. And so the adult model of learning, which I guess distinguishes it from pedagogy, which is focused on on really children, but learning in general, but children, is that adults need an association between what they're learning and their past experience. It has um, to be relevant. It has right? to be relevant. Right. They really have to understand why, why this is important. And so combining that with what the literature suggests about critical thinking development is that it has to be explicit for it to be most effective. And and in that sense, if we're examining something and I'm focused on your critical thinking skills as a, a professor or someone that's, you know, helping you along, I need to be very clear that we are focused on your critical thinking skills. We are looking at maybe the elements of thinking. I am going to focus on what was your purpose here, and then we'll hold it to a standard, and then we'll reflect on how you did. And so having it be a very explicit, deliberate process, the research suggests, and and, and that's what I discovered, worked much better than if we just go through the motions and you're not clear on why we're doing it, what it's about, that it's focused on, on your thinking skills. And so having that element of it being explicit, having an environment that supports the learning with other learners is also important that people were able to learn from watching people who maybe had mastered certain skills a lot better. They could learn from that. And and then finally, the reflective part of it. 
One of the things that I've found now is highly important, whether I'm in the classroom or out in the workplace, is setting aside time to reflect on what happened. What did we just do? What did you take away? What did you learn? What was missing? How were you thinking about certain things? So that element of reflection on either the action or the thinking has also been helpful with adults in learning and so critical thinking. In our world, we speak in terms of ADDIE, the mm-hmm. ADDIE model, mm-hmm. and that E is evaluation. Yeah. So that seems a natural fit mm-hmm. for bringing a more formal critical thinking process. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the key is, though, to have a standard that everybody recognizes and a language that everybody can use. And I think that was the other key thing that came out of of my research and that has been, I think, replicated in other studies is that if – Everybody is clear in an environment on what the concepts are. So if I know that I'm defining critical thinking as thinking about your thinking, and if I know and everybody else is aware that I'm using these elements to break it apart, then we have a concept and we have a language that helps us help each other. So if you are providing an explanation or you're providing a rationale for something, if I were to ask, well, can you tell me what your assumptions are? And then as you state your assumptions, I ask, well, how relevant is that to the situation? Is that the most significant thing? They're everyday words, but they're words we all understand in the context of evaluating our thinking. And it's that language that creates the culture of thinking that I think is the goal of education and training if you're trying to develop better critical thinking skills, that if you have the language and the understanding of the concepts, you have a strong foundation going forward if you're teaching it in a particular subject. Can you give us an example just to illustrate what you mean by the language? The language. So um, when you think about the, again, I'll go back to the Paul and Elder model. They have the elements and they have the standards and then they have what they call these traits or these habits that we're developing mm-hmm. um, by going back and forth between breaking the elements apart and applying standards. So if you're in a discussion, you're trying to make a decision, you're particularly when you're interacting with other people on a team, If someone wants to make explicit their assumptions, which is one of those things I think that we often don't do, we just kind of take for granted that everybody's on the same page. But if somebody says, you know, before we make this decision, before we go any further, I want us to explore what our assumptions are. What are we taking for granted that's true that hasn't been proven to be true? Mm -hmm. Um, And if the expectation is that that's going to happen whenever we're making a decision or we're thinking through something, you're creating a foundation for, a, I think, a thinking culture that uses a language that triggers something. The minute somebody says, what are your assumptions? Oh, I, you know. Then right. I, you're triggering the process. Exactly. You are building in discipline and forming cultural habits of yes. thought and, yes. and evaluation. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Has there been research that shows subjects developing habits, creating habits of mind? Is there a way to measure that that you've been aware of? No, but I, I, I think from um, my early research and then reading a lot and, and attending a few conferences held by, by um, Paul and Elder um, on their model, what they have done is taken the model and applied it to a specific subject. Uh, they have a, a pamphlet on engineering, how critical thinking and engineering sort of work together. Uh, and one of their um, 
they have uh, a template that looks at how do you break apart a an article and it runs through the elements as well. And, and I've used it when I've done work with teams, intact teams, and I kind of get them to tell me a little bit about what your mission is. What, what are you trying to achieve here? Okay, so let's go through these elements and pull it apart. If, if your mission is to provide X or Y, what is your purpose every day when you come in related to that mission? What are some questions you should be asking on a regular basis that support that? Whose point of view should you be considering? Uh, what do you need to understand? So I go through that mm -hmm. and, and it can, it's generic enough because it's a process that it can be applied to any discipline, any subject. And what you're really trying to create, and, and you sort of hit on it, is you want people to be masters of the process, not necessarily the content, which they come with already. You're not yes. trying to reinvent the content, but what you are trying to do is create a process for them to examine what they're doing inside of that content. And so in some of the early research on critical thinking in education, they looked at several models. One model was you introduce what critical thinking is at the beginning, and then you go on to the subject matter, mm -hmm. hoping that they'll just apply it. And so you just do it up front. And the other was you introduce the subject matter and then the critical thinking on the back end. Now, let's look back at how we can apply that. But the most effective model and the model that I used in my research was sort of infusing it. So it's always there. The focus was on program management, but we also brought along, well, how do you do that? How do you become a better better critical thinker within program management? And it was a, a recurring theme and practice throughout the 10 weeks. And it so, seems more like life, you know, yeah. because you, you're not planning. Information reveals itself and mm -hmm. you have to evaluate yeah. it right there. And yeah. if you have better tools to yeah. do it, you'll have better outcomes. Mm -hmm. So you can see how why there would be a push at a place like DAU where we want to, whether we're building a weapons system mm -hmm. ultimately right. or, you know, to support war fighters or have folks make better business decisions. Mm -hmm. It's so much better if you're equipped rather than perhaps accept um, a vendor sales pitch yeah. without any critical thought yeah. to be able to push on certain things or even your own assumptions, mm -hmm. even your own requirements. Yeah. Why are we doing this yeah. in the first place? And mm -hmm. so there's so many elements that it comes to bear. And I'm e even thinking based on what you were saying earlier about the instructional designer who may be preparing to gather information mm -hmm. to craft into mm -hmm. instruction and just the ability to probe subject matter right. experts and sift and sort good information, yeah. junk information. Yeah. And, and one of the key elements of it is, is questioning, right? The, the, the skill of being able to ask just the right question, one that of yourself and of others, one that isn't, you know, sort of antagonistic or, um, sort of just criticizing in a way, or, or you're not trying to create doubt necessarily, but you are trying to, to voice a skepticism and ask questions that help you dig deeper and yep. help you, um, pull things apart. And so one of the key things that the model offers are questions around every one of the elements and questions around all of the standards, questions that you can ask that help bring more clarity. Yes. It's the healthy role of the devil's advocate, yes. <laughs> right? Which yeah. really is just a, a way of describing skepticism. Mm -hmm. But there's a good skepticism. Skepticism is an underpinning of the scientific method. Yes, we absolutely. don't just accept things. We test and yeah. test. And even after you have a theory, there's mm -hmm. like it's a never-ending cycle exactly. of, of challenging. 
I wonder what the world would look like if Einstein got branded a heretic and was, you know, thro <laughs> thrown out of the, yeah. um, you know, based on groupthink. Yeah. One of his quotes that I like to use is, um, and I may not have it exactly right. I've seen it different ways. That if he if he had uh, an hour, which is sixty minutes, to contemplate something, to think about something, he would spend fifty-five of those minutes asking questions: mm. um, why, how. How many? What you know? Just trying to pull it apart. Um, our our culture is very action oriented. Not just the the defense culture, but as Americans, I think mm -hmm. we action. That's kind of a part of our history. And what critical thinking helps to some extent helps us to do is to slow down that action somewhat and think a little bit more about again the assumptions, the implications. Why are we acting so fast? Right. Um, and, and a lot of times what we found is by slowing down and asking the questions, you kind of speed up on the back end if you take the time to slow down and ask Absolutely. the good questions on the front end. <clears throat> we jump to execution too quickly. Yeah. When you are executing for all the right reasons, we don't want bureaucracy or, right. or the committee effect, but often people are too quick to action. I found myself over my career on various projects mm -hmm. where I'm still questioning the premise, yeah. and then there might be a fear that it, this came from leadership, and you know you don't want to be the emperor exactly. has no clothes person. <laughs> exactly. But I think leadership will appreciate it if you come back and say this is not a good idea exactly. for these reasons. So yeah. Yeah, that deliberate slowing down, having a process as a, as a framework is, is so important. Yeah. And part of the, the culture, creating a thinking culture, is also recognizing and rewarding good efforts in that area. So it doesn't mean that every outcome is going to be what mm -hmm. you want. There are always surprises because we're governed by other factors than just the decision only that we make. And so a, a culture that recognizes the importance of it, but also recognizes when it's done well, even if the outcome is not what you desired it to be, the thought put into it and creating that learning environment, really a learning team that is willing to try things and to question their own assumptions is really what you what would be nirvana, I guess, in terms of a thinking culture. What are some of the things that shape our thinking and, and maybe taking it from a, a brain or neuroscience standpoint? How can we deal with that? Yeah, so what, what the uh, scientists believe, and particularly neuroscientists, is that the brain, our thinking is impacted by three brains instead of one. We think of just one mass. That there is the old brain, which they call the reptilian brain, and it's almost the stem on the in, in, very inside. And it's labeled that because when you think about what reptiles do all day, they're focused on surviving not getting eaten, finding food, sleeping, resting, you know, those kind of things. It's all about survival and instinct, how they're going to react to something. The next layer up is the midbrain, and it is really where our emotions reside. It's it's where feelings are, are and where intuition is. And partly that's because that's where our long-term memory is. Because our brain is so complex, it uses shortcuts, we call them heuristics, to make decisions or to do things so that we don't have to consciously think about them all the time. So if you imagine driving to work and you're on autopilot and you get there and you don't remember the drive, it wasn't that you were unconscious. It was just, obviously, right? I've it's, done that. <laughs> it's just that that midbrain has taken over. It's a task that's repetitive. You've done it before. You don't have to really focus on it. And so... 
it's the higher brain, the brain that sits, they call it the neofrontal cortex or the neocortex. That is where judgment and discernment and, and all those really higher order thinking things reside. And the belief is that that part of your brain doesn't really form completely until you're about 24, 25. And they've done different types of diagnostic tests and um, things where they can see areas of the brain light up and they know that that part doesn't form completely. Uh, does it mean at 25 you magically make better decisions? No, but the ability to do it is is strengthened and is more available to you after that time. Before that time, the areas that impact your decision most are going to be that instinct and intuition. Right. But the higher order thinking helps you sort of pull away from that and look at it in a more critical way. And why that's important is that if you know you are you need to make a an important decision or you need to really weigh some things very carefully, you're not at your best if you are afraid or worried about surviving, whether that's mm-hmm. the job, the class, whatever it is. And you're not at your best thinking if you are unhappy at the moment or sad or not feeling well or anything in that emotional or physical realm because in order to fire up that neocortex the frontal neocortex you need a lot of energy and it's short-lived and so if all these other parts of the brain are sort of dominant in what's happening at the moment you are not able to do your best thinking you certainly aren't able to pull apart the elements in an objective way because you're being influenced so heavily by the need to survive or emotions yeah so it's really a good model just to for, again self-awareness it is. that you know am i part of my brain am I thinking with? Mm -hmm. Am I just reacting in a reptilian way? Exactly. If you've ever tried to make a decision about what to eat when you're hungry, Mm -hmm. you know that that is, you know, all of a sudden it's overwhelming. Well, you know, don't shop when you're hungry. Exactly. And that's why. And that's why. Because you're not as objective. Yeah. And I have moments where I win that battle and others (laughs) when I lose it. And when I'm at my best, I'm realizing I'm I'm a little bit hungry right now. I just got to get out of here. Yep. That's it. And in the the end, what the neuroscientists have have concluded is it's that awareness that makes the difference, that that is what creates these new pathways, being aware of how you think and having the intent to improve how you think, that that attention and intention can sort of work together to improve our our habits, which is that midbrain. That's where habits reside. So it means that you can take that neofrontal cortex the stuff happening in the higher thinking and if you do it repeatedly in a systematic way they become habits and then they become more automatic so you can sort of reshape your brain reshape and your thinking exactly and that's you use the term neuroplasticity uh, or just plasticity it's creating new pathways in the brain um so it's almost like uh, if anybody remembers um albums or RP, you know, the old, old plastic old album. LPs, LP. yes. No matter where you put it, it was going to play the same thing over mm-hmm. and over and over. But then you compare that maybe to a read-write CD or DVD. You can write over the information there, but it doesn't mean that old path goes away. You've just written in a new, a new file or new path to some information that might have been similar to the old information. It still it resides along with the old information, but the path pathway that you access now is this new way because you're aware of it. And the longer you're aware of it and you're focused on it, the more it becomes a habit. And then at some point, you're no longer even aware of it. It's, it just is. It's just there. 
Yeah, it's interesting. There's been a lot of discussion about habits lately. There's a book called The Power of yes. Habit. Mm -hmm. And I interviewed recently Julie Dirksen, mm -hmm. who is known in our industry for uh, some of her work. She's gotten into mm -hmm brain science and uh, digital habit formation. Mm -hmm. So that's another episode. I'm, I'm mm -hmm. plugging our other shows right now. <laughs> um, but it's a fascinating field, and it gives hope to creatures of habit who, <laughs> you know, old dogs who need to learn new mm -hmm. tricks. Yeah. It gives you hope that, you, yes, you can shape your thinking and with intention and make, make better and attention, make better decisions. So I'm thinking about the instructional designer that might be listening right now, thinking, okay, this is a very interesting subject area, but how do I apply it to my job? Do you have any simple solutions or first steps that an ISD or other educators can take as they approach their work? Yeah, I think there's a, a practical side that's really looking at the elements and really thinking about it as you develop materials or, or a plan or activities for uh, a classroom is what is the purpose of any activity that you include and being clear on that. Is it a nice to have or does it really support the learning objectives or critical thinking? Is it really asking the participant, the learner to reflect on how they got there or what are their underlying beliefs? Or so I think in in the actual activity of designing, you can use the critical thinking model and the elements. Why am I doing it? Whose perspective? What are some questions I need to ask? But also in incorporated into the activities. So if the uh, learners are given the opportunity to um, collaborate on something that is a problem, an issue that they can hold each other accountable for their thinking and be explicit about their logic. How do they get here? If it's experiential, meaning it's, it's related to a workplace problem or something they would realistically face, then it means more. It's back to associating it with something. Yes, that relevant um, connection for an adult yeah. learner. And, and if it's active and constructive, so you're giving the learners an opportunity to learn from other people. So it's not just what they thought. They can hear an explanation, assumptions, questions that other people ask around the same situation. And part of what that helps inform is over time, you, if you're exposed to that enough, you naturally will start to think about those other perspectives other than your own. Mm. If you hear them enough, hear different ones enough, you go, you know, I normally always go left, but I'm hearing the folks go right and this is why. And so maybe that will stick with me if I'm exposed to that enough times over a learning period, whatever that is around a problem or a situation. It just helps bring those other voices in your head, even though we don't like to think about voices in our head, sure. but it helps bring <laughs> bring those other voices that because of our training and intuition, we tend to not have. We tend to see things a certain way. And so having activities in a classroom or in a, in a learning environment that help bring out those other perspectives and other assumptions, I think are important for designing. Excellent. Dr. DeLeon, this has been very illuminating. I'm going to work on my own critical thinking skills. I need <laughs> to make better day, decisions. Every day oh, yes. have to work on it. <laughs> Keep me out of trouble. But thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To catch up on all of our shows, subscribe in iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you listen to podcasts. The Learning Circle is produced and distributed by the Defense Acquisition University.